Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. I hope welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. But if not, welcome for the first time to the Bill Bennett Show. That sounds egotistical almost. Well, Sorry. no. I mean, we love people it's the name who... the show. Fi- yeah, well, we love people who find the show for the first time. I don't think it's egotistical. You know, you're the least self-promoting person that I know. Even though we're going to spend some time today talking about things that you've been writing about. But we'll get to that later. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go right ahead. Well, you give it, then you take it away. <laughs> anyway, this is the Bill Bennett Show. Gosh, again, I did it again. It's the <laughs> podcast that translates Donald Trump. Take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America. Is COVID-19 an existential threat to America? No. We'll talk about that. Joining me today, Byron York, columnist at the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. I want to look at the politics of the coronavirus. I haven't done that. I've been doing the numbers and stuff, and Claude, you and I will get into that. Uh, we'll also catch up on uh, any emails, Facebook posts that we need to keep them coming. And where should people send their comments? Sure. Well, they can always go to your social media feeds. Just search Bill Bennett on Facebook, William J. Bennett on Twitter. Uh, and they can email uh, Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. Right. Um, let me discuss a few things. Um, you know, I've been on uh, Fox and Friends this week and going on, you know, well, you've been doing a lot of writing um, about the COVID stuff uh, and really kind of shaking it up a little bit, Dr. Bennett. I mean, I know, uh, you've, I know. Been, you've been taking less popular stances on what's been happening and, uh, and, and views on things. And I think, you know, obviously your show is a great platform to kind of get your thoughts out. I'm just curious, uh, because I've never asked you this. I know you have to listen to me sometimes because, you know, the producer of the show and I ask you to listen to those po- things. But have you heard some of this criticism of me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, um, everything from, you know, you're not taking it serious enough uh, to, you know, the whole playing politics with everything, Um, you know, and there are a lot of people who are fearful and think that there is reason to panic. You're saying that there's not reason to panic. Uh, And that just seems to be, you know, a lot of the criticism there with that. Yeah. You know, I realize my positions here are unconventional and maybe a lot of the public disagrees with me. I know a lot of the experts do, certainly liberals do, elites do. Um, But I'm just basically, by the way, when I say I, all the three pieces out now, maybe four articles, op-eds the last two weeks, they've been co-authored by by, uh, Seth Liebson and me. You remember Seth, producer of this show for a while and now has the Seth Liebson show out of uh, Phoenix. Uh, we've co-authored these pieces, and they've been very carefully researched. Um, basic position here is um, it's not an existential threat, as I said up front, to the country. It's serious. People who get this uh, this virus need to be take it very seriously, especially if they're elderly and have underlying conditions. Um, and uh, salute the doctors and medical personnel who are dealing with it, and you know all the people who help and support. My hats off to them. But you know they're, they're, the, the the American people have had the hell scared out of them, and we've had the country shut down. And, and the facts do not merit that. Let me just give you a few facts. Uh, they now estimate deaths from the coronavirus um, to be about sixty-five thousand. This is uh, down from. First things we heard out of England were like 2.2 million in the U.S. And then it was a million. As the president will tell you, it was a million, then 500,000, then 250. When Fauci, Fauci was talking, 180 to 250. Now it's 65. Okay, uh, you know, those are real events, and I take them seriously. But it's about the same number as, as the people who died from the flu in the United States in 2017 and 18. Uh, and uh, we didn't shut the country down over this. I mean, part of my... Uh, sort of 
I don't say distemper, but a little bit of impatience with the conventional wisdom as people are thinking, well, there's the deaths from COVID and, you know, we got to do that and pay attention to nothing else. Nonsense. There are costs and even body count to doing this, uh, to shutting the country down. Um, I'll give cite you just one or two numbers later, but I mean, a dramatic increase as people go unemployed um, in suicides, in uh, alcohol consumption, in uh, child abuse, uh, domestic abuse. Um, you know, the people from uh, Child Protective Services can't take calls and go to people's homes. And um, I don't mean to suggest that 65,000 deaths is nothing or that 65,000 deaths from either COVID or the flu is nothing. But we don't react like this for the flu. And, 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 and again, I mean, because of this, um, you know, if there were no costs, uh, you know, who would care about shutting down the country? But shut down the country, you got huge costs. 17 million people are unemployed, mm-hmm. lost their jobs. 17 million. Unemployment rate's going to go from 3.5 to maybe 15 or 20 percent. We scared the hell out of the American people. We shut down the schools, kind of a point of sensitivity to me. Uh, churches, synagogues, uh, liquor stores are open, but churches and synagogues are closed. They're not essential. You know, can we get this economy back? Well, we got to get it. We got to get it started again. Let me give you another number. Worldwide, uh, the World Health Organization, I know you can discredit it, but it estimates 300,000 to 600,000 people a year uh, die from the flu. Uh, COVID, 130,000. So, you know, those are those are just facts. And I, I just think at, at this point, you're beginning to see the reaction around the country to the shutdown. Uh, listeners probably saw what happened in Michigan and Kentucky. People are saying, we want to go back to work. It's not just a matter of a paycheck. This is my point. It's a matter of mental health and stability and mortality. Get these numbers. I, I, I heard Steve Moore talking about this. I wasn't quite sure. He said for every 1% of unemployment, uh, econ- economists and statisticians estimate 10,000 people die. I have four articles. Unemployment can increase rates of death 50% in cardiac patients. Uh, this from the Huffington Post, um, based on studies, every 1% increase in unemployment, you can see a rise of 47,000 deaths, including 26,000 from heart attacks, 1,200 from suicide, 831 murders, and 635 related to alcohol consumption. Unemployment strongly associated with uh, suicide in 18 to 24-year-olds. Um, and uh, uh, this is from The Hill. You know, these are not right-wing sources here. If unemployment increases by 5% in the current economic shutdown, that could mean some 16,000 additional suicides. 10% spike in unemployment could mean 30,000. Well, if you get a 15% spike, you'll have uh, 45,000 suicides. Just suicide by itself would equal the number of deaths, if those numbers are right, as, um, as the whole COVID body count. And then count in the other things that happen, plus... You may lose an economy, you know. I don't think, I think this thing comes back, but I don't think it jumps back because supply lines are broken. People, some businesses have broken down. Their credit's gone. They've got to apply for credit again. You know, there's timing issues, right? So that uh, also, I have to tell you that I talked to the Secretary of Labor, Eugene Scalia. He used to work for me, son of uh, Antonin Scalia. And I said, who does this fall upon, this burden? And he said it falls upon, uh, politically, it falls upon Trump voters and, uh, and Obama voters about equally. Um, falls very heavily on black and Hispanic workers. Falls very heavily on, um, you know, people get paid by the hour. Uh, uh, you know, people who you know, are not in the preferred professions or the protected professions, such as the media. 
Excuse me, Claude. I know that's you. Right. And I, then, I, I have an essential me. badge that says I'm essential uh, so I can be out in the state of Maryland as uh, everyone else thinks. So. Every time your wife yells at you, you should say, look at this badge. Yeah, you can't yell at an essential employee of... Uh, no, you can't. Yeah. Wives can yell at anybody. <laughs> I mean, any, any wife can yell at any husband, no matter how august and uh, powerful he is. Anyway, that's it. I mean, I'm just saying that... Um, what did was this the right response now you know the the numbers the models were all wrong i and i you know i don't fault scientists for having the wrong models it's very difficult to predict particularly when you don't know what you're dealing with but they should have said so look we're not sure of this and don't you think that a lot of people thought if we don't shut down we're going to have you know a million deaths or five hundred thousand. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought. That. Oh, absolutely. But if you look, and I'm just not finished with this research, but I just look, looked at patterns around the world. I looked at seven countries, some of which had pretty severe shutdown policies, some of which didn't. Patterns the same. It comes up, it rises, it falls, then it starts to fall dramatically. It's like there's a lifespan of this uh, of this virus, and whether you social distance and lock people behind doors or not. It, uh, it behaves the same. Uh, I'm not saying it was wrong not to social to, to social distance. I'm not saying that. But we, we got to get back to work. And as someone said, a friend of mine told me that a, a woman who works for her said, you know, I know I'm out of work now, but um, how is it that people can go to work at Amazon, 150,000 new hires and Walmart and continue to work, but everybody else can't because they figured out how to be able to work and they have shields up like you see in the grocery stores, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, and spacing, and you can do that. And I'm not saying just put all the throngs together and have parades. Be careful, be thoughtful. But um, you you run this economy down. You shut it down another month. I'm not sure you get it back. And the overreactions have been to me crazy, just just crazy, and uh, scared the hell out of the children, and a lot of cost to it. All right, I'm, I've been given a speech here, but what else can I tell you? You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's welcome Byron York, columnist at the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. I want to sort of disaggregate, talking about Biden and Trump. I want to talk about the governors, talk about the House, Senate. But overall, what are the politics of this as you see it right now? I've read your columns. The way this ends up is going to determine the politics of this. I think if it does get under control and if the country is able to move in back in the direction of normalcy, um, which is a completely accepted word now. And, you know, at, by, by the end of summer, by the fall, this is in the rearview mirror for a lot of people. I think that's one thing. I think it it doesn't hurt the president much. I think a lot of the bickering and accusations that characterized, you know, the first few weeks of this will not be that big a deal. On the other hand, something something this big has long-lasting effects. It can have long-lasting effects. Um, if there's been some sort of uh, rebound outbreak that uh, that is a problem, if uh, people's lives are still sort of circumscribed in ways that they are right now, or if uh, a lot of people are still out of work, then that could be a problem uh, for the president. Um, The question is whether Joe Biden is a person to take political advantage of it. Um, He has struggled to be relevant in all of this. He has, um, you know, he he did 
uh, write an op-ed on January 27th saying that uh, coronavirus could be serious. So he gets points for that. Um, but he didn't do much after that. Um, and his sort of efforts to speak to the world or to the nation from his basement have not been all that effective. And I think a lot of Democrats um, uh, have looked at the role of Andrew Cuomo, who actually is in power and can do something as the governor of New York and, and found him a much more appealing spokesman for the party on these issues, although many of them have probably forgotten why they didn't like Andrew Cuomo. But they relearn that if he if he were to you know reenter national um, politics. So there's just a lot of things that are unclear right now. That's not going to happen. We can put that aside right now, can't we? I mean, Biden will is will be the nominee, not Cuomo. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've I've actually written that. It's just it's just a kind of a grass is greener feeling among some uh, Democrats. No, the the nominee has to be somebody that people voted for. That seems to be kind of a kind of a basic uh, sure, principle. Sure. Uh, but it is, and um, the the idea that uh, that more than 10 million people have voted for Biden so far, and Democrats in the in the Democratic primaries, and the idea that somehow party leaders would come up to the convention or virtual convention and say, well, you know, I know we all voted for Biden, but uh, we would like to run somebody else. I mean, you just can't do that. So he is the guy now, especially Bernie Sanders has has pulled out of the race. All of his other um, opponents are gone. And so he, for better or for worse, he is the leader of the Democratic Party at the moment. The uh, a lot of the Democrats are saying about the president, and I, I don't want to talk about their you know their psychology here. Uh, oh, maybe I do. But uh, they're saying you know that he was at fault. He missed so many opportunities. I've watched uh, CNN, MSNBC, some, and it, they're just you know day after day saying he messed this up. He's responsible. He messed this up. Um, clearly, the political motives are, are at work here in part sure. um, because people are always talking. You know when they. Uh, lay these things out. They have they have a number of motives. Um, I'm, I'm, I sincerely think a lot of Democrats and that Democrat governors truly are concerned first and foremost with the safety and well-being of their of their constituents. But you know, your politics politics is being performed here. There's no uh, partisan politics. First question: Do you think there's a lot to the allegations of misfeasance uh, or worse by the president uh, that the Democrats are laying on him for failure to act in January, February? Well. My problem with that accusation is that I think it's kind of a historical pattern in the United States that we're unprepared for big things that end up kind of whacking us in the face and that we react slowly to them and then we kind of pick up steam. And it takes a while to you know, get awake and, and, and get moving. This is not to, to forgive the president for everything. I, I think that he did one of the single best things early on, which was his January 31st restriction travel for China. Uh, but then he didn't, he, he made his biggest mistake, which was not jumping on the uh, idea of testing and making that happen. And most especially pushing his bureaucracy to make that happen. I mean, you, you understand this, you've headed a cabinet department before, you know, a president can't just say, I want this to get done. And then it gets done. He has to push the bureaucracy down into the bureaucracy to make things work. And the president didn't do that. Now, the fact that uh, so many other advanced Western nations have had terrible times with this kind of tells me that it's not all Donald Trump's fault. Uh, I don't think France and Spain and Italy uh, were were listening or being run by President Trump at that time. So um, so that you know strikes me as is something to remember. 
uh, with the president. And the other thing is, we do have a federal system, and um, some uh, governors around the country reacted better than others. And one of the striking things about the New York situation is that there was there has been this kind of political celebration of the governor who presided over by far the worst outbreak in the country. I mean, an absolutely disastrous and tragic situation in New York. Um, and um, the New York Times did a story not too long ago that, that Gavin Newsom, basically uh, the governor of California, did a um, stay-at-home order uh, when they were under a thousand cases uh, in the state, and Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, waited several days until there were more than seven thousand cases in his state. I believe that Cuomo's took effect on March twenty-second, and and California was on the eighteenth. That's off the top of my head. You can check those. No, actually, second. you can look up that New York Times story, and I actually tweeted the relevant section of that somewhere in my Twitter feed. Uh, the, the, one of the things that strikes me uh, when I've been responding to this, and you know, I'm, I mean, I am, I am a partisan. I like to think I make up my mind based on the facts, but I don't deny that I have a, you know, I have a color, and it's red, you know. Uh, but but <laughs> is is on this whole thing about the president? You make a very good point about other countries, but whatever bashing is being done of the president, most of the people who bash him at the same time are elevating and celebrating Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, both of whom are, you know, impressive. I know, I know Fauci very well. Um, but, you know, I, I have, I have, I'm sure you've listened to it, uh, Anthony Fauci on February 29th, goodness knows, mm-hmm. saying on NBC, I, you know, I don't think anybody has to change anything they're doing. Yeah. This is this is very late on the on the Trump calendar by the Trump bashers. That is, he should have been doing all this stuff in January. Well, the gurus, the sage and wise people whom he's been listening, didn't think much needed to be done either. At least the, the ones who are the most prominent. You're absolutely right about that. And I, you know, I think one thing that people I don't know why they're not thinking of this, but when the president comes out and says something like he says, um, "There's no need at the moment, no need to change your life," uh, or he or when he says to the governor of New York. No, you're not going to need 30,000 or 40,000 ventilators. He's not talking off the top of his head. He is offering the popular version of what he has heard from his experts. And you mentioned doctors um, uh, Fauci and Burks. He's, he, you know, we know that Dr. Burks was saying New York is not going to need 30 to 40,000 ventilators. And so the president said that again, not off the top of his head, but basically repeating the guidance that he was given from these experts to whom he was listening. So, um, you know, I think when you put together the fact that this is a world problem, the fact that uh, other governors, uh, other leaders in the country did not exactly jump on this thing. And then there's one more question that I'd like to hear what you think about it. I, I don't think it can be answered, but the fear level in the country had to reach a certain level before uh, stay at home and other measures could stick. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's entirely possible the president could have come out on February 15th and said, everybody's got to stay at home. We got to close down. We got to close down the restaurants. We got to close down. Forget the concerts. No more gatherings of more than 10 people. And I, and, and nobody would have accepted that at all because they, there had not been deaths in the United States and there were, the number of cases was tiny compared to what it is now. And the public has to get to a certain place before a leader can sell them something like that. And Andrew Cuomo has actually said this in his own defense about why he didn't go earlier, is that he had to communicate to the people of New York why this was necessary. And it's another part of our um, 
of our political system that we don't really deal with problems until they become kind of big and in our, our face. Just talk to the people who've tried to reform Social Security over the years. Um, and so that's another factor. It's hard to measure, um, but the the country had to get to a point mentally uh, before these measures could actually stick. Yeah, Seth and I wrote... Uh... Uh, you know, we had to, why the hell did we have to scare? Why do we have to scare the hell out of the people? And one critic said that was the only way to get them to do the right thing, right? That's basically well, what you're saying. Yeah, here. you know, but I, I think what scared the hell out of people is, is you can you can come and you can you know deliver the um, you know a fire breathing speech, but here's what scared the hell out of people. On the first day of March, there had been one coronavirus coronavirus death in the United States, and by April 12th, there were 22,105. April 12th being just a few days ago. Many more now. Uh, that's what changed. That's why people who were, resi- were resistant to calls to shut down everyday life uh, were no longer resistant. And as a matter of fact, I, I just did it for a new piece I've done for the Examiner. I did an interview with Tom Cotton, who did warn of coronavirus danger very early in January. Uh, he said, look, what caused the economy to grind to a halt has not been a governor's order or a mayor's order or a public health bureaucrat's order. It is the fear of the virus. And I believe now, if today President Trump said everything's okay, we're reopening everything, go out to eat in a restaurant, jump on a plane, attend a concert. I mean, how many people would do that? I don't think it, it would be very many and certainly not enough to pull the economy out of the current hole. So you've got to deal with that fear. And the fear was based on actual facts of thousands of people dying. And um, and it, it, in an unfamiliar way, this is not car accidents or the seasonal flu or things that, you, you know, look at statistically kill so many people. That's something that people have factored into their lives. This is not something that people have factor in their life. Key word there is unfamiliar. Uh, I don't want to be a smart aleck with you, but in that same period of time, that six weeks, Uh we lost the same number of people to the flu, maybe more. We lost not 21,000, but 225,000 people to heart disease, cancer, etc. 225, 10 times that amount. So this is complicated. I'm not not saying, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's complicated. But the media decided to just blare this full volume and i think scare the hell out of the people and i think when they did because people i don't think have any idea what these other numbers are when i've presented these numbers to people they say i had no idea that really mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. plus the numbers that were being projected byron you know 2.2 million out of the imperial college in london and then Fauci says 250, 260,000, you know, very likely could die. You know, and now the estimate is 60. I, I, by the way, I don't fault him for I, I kind of fault him for saying that because he's been around a long time. And he would have to know when he says the high end is this and the low end is this. All that's going to be reported by most people is the high end. Right. But mm-hmm. but but if he did say it, he should have said these models are very, very, very tenuous. Yeah, that's 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 one point. But the other point is, don't you wish they'd say that about climate change, by the way? uh, Yeah, well, maybe they will, because one of the things we pointed out, this is a pattern. You know, we had the population explosion. You know, we had, uh, you know, the, 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 the population bomb. You remember that we had the nuclear winter. Uh, again, mm-hmm. scaring the hell out of SARS. You're scared the hell out of the people. There's only so many times you can do that. Here's the other thing, and I don't want to throw us into a into a detour, rabbit trails, we say in radio. But it's not at all clear to me, the evidence, that it makes a damn bit of difference. If you look at the countries which have had strict kind of orders and controls, stay-at-homes, versus those who haven't, the damn pattern's the same. 
It goes up, uh-huh. goes down, and then it drops. It's almost as if the more plausible hypothesis is, like a hummingbird, this virus, nasty hummingbird, has a lifespan, and it's going to have its way. Do the states on this. Uh-huh. Uh, guys at Powerline have been comparing Minnesota and what the governor estimated there, and the strictures yeah. he put in Minnesota to, you know this, to Iowa and Missouri, where they didn't do this. And it's it's the same it's the same pattern. So so it wasn't necessary. Now let me just finish this thought. So people listening who haven't listened to me before don't think I'm a fool. It's not as if this was cost free. Again, 17 million jobs and a shutdown of the economy and. Most of the research I've seen suggests for each 1% unemployment that increases, we lose 10,000 people to death, alcoholism, right. suicide, other things. Uh, that number by itself could equal the number of people dying from COVID-19. Uh, when I talked to the president's people, I said, for God's sakes, don't, you know, don't do you know, money versus life. First do life versus life. And I'll bet you if mm-hmm. you take the life, the life cost of the shutdown, you will find more people dead. Uh, because mm-hmm. of the effect of the shutdown than because of COVID. I think on the scaring the population part, there were two really unfortunate, there was an unfor- a really unfortunate confluence of two things in the media. The first is just the, and this is nonpartisan, their tendency to just overhype dangers. Anybody who's ever watched the uh, coverage of a hurricane knows that they overhype these things. And sometimes the hurricane turns out to be a big deal, and sometimes it does not. Uh, but there is just a hype and promotion scene that just goes into overdrive um, when when there's some sort of threat. And then you mix that with um, Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, you mix that with the anti-Trumpism that so many uh, in the media have shown, and it's it turned into a really kind of a poisonous atmosphere at a time when we really, really didn't need... Um, a poisonous atmosphere. And so um, I agree with you about various relative threats. I I don't know exactly what to say about which public policy would have been best. I frankly just, uh, I just don't know. But I do know that, that the, the adversarial relationship that existed between the press and the president just took a very ugly turn uh, when things turned into a, a life and death situation. And it would have been really nice if it had not. I don't, I don't know these things. I just I'm just reporting the facts. But you know, if it has this pattern in different states with different rules, it makes you think. But no, I, I agree. I had a question for you, to a particular question, because we put this in one of our pieces. Um, New York was the most hard hit, and New York is one of the two. I guess the is it still the main media center in the in the country? Sure. So I mean, well, I, the the thing is, is that uh, it, it's often remarked. That if something happens in New York, say a disaster or a shooting of three or four people or some sort of accident, uh, it'll get a lot of coverage in New York, and it literally would have gotten zero coverage if it happened in Albuquerque or Oklahoma City. Zero. Now, in this case, I mean, if you look at, I mean, basically New York City um, plus Westchester, Suffolk, and Nassau counties, the three big suburban counties, plus a bit across the river in New, New Jersey. I mean, you've got half the cases in the entire country there. They have had a terrible outbreak. And, I mean, it just dwarfs anything anywhere else. So it really was news. Now, the, the problem has been is that people who are looking at New York and deciding that on the basis in New, of New York, they need to, uh, to make policy for Arkansas. Um, Tom Cotton was talking to me. I just mentioned the interview I did with him 
he was saying, look, there's just not a, a one-size-fits-all one size fits national policy. What is good for New York City is not going to be good for Kansas City, and neither one of them is going to be good for Star City, Arkansas. Just so you know on this, Star City, Arkansas, the county it's in, has a total of 56 cases. Um, Kansas City and its suburban county in Missouri have 552 cases. And New York City at the time I wrote this had 172,000 cases. I mean, the differences are huge. And then you can say, well, did we really need to impose these restrictive measures uh, everywhere? And you've seen the beatdown some of the media have given the very few governors who have declined to impose stay-at-home orders. Um, and the most recent being to Christy Noem and uh, the Republican governor of South Dakota. Because there was an outbreak in Minnehaha County where uh, a big uh, meat processing plant was, which had to be shut down. And uh, But the rest of the state, there's almost nothing, almost nothing in terms of these cases. So the, the focus on New York and Washington leads so many in the media to just focus entirely on the president or on Congress and on national policy when what is needed is a way to recognize that the, the, um, the uh, outbreak across this country is vastly different in different places and vastly more serious in some places, mainly New York and its environs, than anywhere else. I saw, um, no, you're absolutely right. I saw, I mean to make light of this, but I saw, and we need a, a breaking news. We need to rush onto the studio. Senator John Barrasso. What is it, Senator? Oh, we have our first death in Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not laughing at that, but just one, one. Um, okay. I mean, that's different from New York. By the way, New York needs to be disaggregated, too. I don't know if you've done into this, but not so much Manhattan, but Queens, uh, Elmhurst Hospital. Um, you know, I know a lot of listeners you know, get frustrated with the New York Times. God knows they do things that are just absolutely inexcusable. Uh, but they have done some good coverage of this, and they did a fantastic article in Queens about the areas um, that were hardest hit. And uh, the living condition in many of these areas, which is families living together, it's just an incredibly polyglot area with immigrants from all around the world um, living together, many, many in small apartments, families living in one apartment, where if one person gets it, everybody's going to get it. And if you look at this, and then you look at the map of Manhattan, um, you know, it's, it's much, much less of a problem than it is in Queens and Brooklyn and parts of the, uh, the Bronx as well. So um, you're right. You do need to disaggregate. It does, it does appear to go out. I mean, you're the New Yorker here. I'm from Alabama. But it appears to go out Long Island as well. Sure. And it really oh, sure, spread out sure. there. No, well, if you get a hot spot radiating, like, you know, let's say that Elmhurst, Queens was, uh, you know, the center. I mean, it's going to radiate because of, uh, you know, where people go, where people travel. But, but this, is an, this is another set of facts that are important. I was just saying the, over you, and I shouldn't have been doing it in these, in these places where a lot of people live, that's multi-generational. And if yeah. also another fact, if you break this down by age, you know, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, over 65 with underlying conditions, you know, you, you know, it's a, it's a serious matter. You know, I, when I read and knocked me off my chair, Italy at the point we were all talking about worrying about Italy and and it was just reported by Dr. Burke she said now you do need to bear in mind that the um, uh, the average uh, age of people dying in Italy is 80.5 right well hell I don't mean to you know say well like would the Roseanne Rosanna Dana say never mind but I mean come on you know the, uh, life expectancy is yeah. 83 okay too bad but that's not that's not a generally general dis- equally distributed plague or or, or, or or virus so I, I just want to bring that up but but I, I we can't keep you forever I, I gotta comment whatever you want but I got two more questions that will let you go 
here's the thing that I think uh, did contribute to changed attitudes in the United States was that uh, we did hear these reports from Italy, and I saw the I saw the 80 year old number, uh, and I thought, wow. Um, seems pretty obvious uh, where the greatest threat in this lies. And you need to protect places where there are a lot of people who are 80 years old. I mean, clearly you need uh, need efforts to, to, to keep this out of uh, nursing homes. Uh, and by the way, which make efforts every year to try to keep the flu out of the nursing home as well. Um, but uh, I think the thing that changed in, in the United States is that once it came here, and the other one other thing I was going to say, the Tom Hanks experience, all the public, all the publicity that got, where he basically gets it and appears to have a few days where he feels bad, and then that's it, and he's okay. Um, I think it led a lot of people to think that um, that it, it wasn't that big a deal for most people. And then you do have coverage of people in the United States um, who were well under eighty, who were under sixty, who get really sick and die with this. Now, you say it's underlying conditions, but if you if you define underlying conditions broadly enough, that's a large part of the United States population. So I think it scared a lot of people uh, who were 45 years old or 55 years old who had high blood pressure um, or who had diabetes or something like that, and they began to get really afraid because, I mean, that's a lot of people in this country. So I think that the, the kind of character of the, of the disease changed as we saw it in China and, and Italy when it came to here. Remind me two other cases. I mean, I just uh, the wall-to-wall coverage when Boris Johnson went in and was in intensive care. Yeah. M- much less coverage when he's out bopping around again. Yeah. Uh, Rand Paul, I remember that was announced. Shock and shock and and um, anxiety yeah. has gripped the nation's capital. Rand Paul has the virus. Rand Paul's got, 10 days later was out being a doctor, you know? Um, well, the Johnson case we don't know enough about. Um, I mean, Johnson did come out. You know, his statement was all about the NHS. <laughs> the the political issue there is that we've got to keep the NHS at all costs. But um, he thanked all of the nurses who helped him. And then he, he specifically thanked two or three who he said were with him every minute, watching him every minute. And I thought, well, if anybody's ever been in a hospital, you know, and, and uh, they've They've gone out in the hall to try to get a nurse to come see their parent or their, you know, their wife or their husband or whatever. Um, uh, they realize that most people don't have somebody watching them over every single minute. But amazingly enough, the prime minister of England did. I think that's perfectly reasonable. There's only one prime minister. You need to keep him alive. Um, but he got a very different sort of sort of treatment, I think. One other little thing. Uh, I do think in terms of this going after the president. If he's for it, they're against it. Um, I heard Dr. Oh, Oz, who I think has been really very good on all this, very sensible and, and balanced, say, you know, let's take a look at what the uh, media and others thought about hydrochloroquine before President Trump was for it. You know? <laughs> and people said, well, fine, give it a try, you know. But once the president was for it, it was, you know, no, God, don't risk it. And I know. I know. Asked, once the president talks about the problems at the WHO... Everybody is completely for the WHO. The, the knee-jerk nature of this would be funny if the times weren't so serious. All right, let's get to the, the where we are now and what I think is going to happen. Let me put forward a hypothesis back to the politics of this. I think today we're talking on Thursday, Byron. I think the president's going to talk about sort of timing of uh, reopening. And I think he's going to say 
governors will be consulted. We got to be careful. Maybe keep at home people who are aged with uh, underlying conditions, people who test positive, etc. And you know, the, you know, step at a time. The stupid light switch analogy. You know, I'm sorry, Dr. Fauci keeps. It's not like we switch on a light switch. Of course not. Um, you know, you can have a three watt bulb here. You know, you can have 75, 100, 150. You can go to 175, and then and then 150. But let's. Say, I think he's going to be pushing to reopen. Um, because of the mm-hmm. costs of not reopening compared to sure. the costs of risk. When he does, there'll be a number of Democrats who will resist, resist him simply because he's doing it. But where will the people be? Where will the groundswell be if, you know, we, we got this little test case going on in Michigan where there's this huge protest, another one in Kentucky. Will governors who hate Trump and want to resist him at any cost be able to maintain that and maintain their total shutdowns or close to total shutdowns. Yeah. If he says loosen up, this goes back to what you were saying earlier. Or will the people, if they see the people in Kentucky and Michigan or Arkansas going back to work, are they going to want to go back to work? How will this? How will this play out? You think? And I don't. And I know. I know. I know. My first question was, we don't know because we don't know where we'll be in October, November. But this could happen in the next couple of weeks. No, we don't know. But a couple of things. Uh, I understand about the whole the light bulb thing, but I get the sense, and I, and I have to say, look, I live in the Washington D.C. area, um, so I see things around me that are not the same as if I lived in Oklahoma City or if I lived in Redwood, California, or something like that. Um, but I get the sense that most of the public is on board until May first because of the severity of this. They kind of bought into the 30-day president's 30-day thing, so we're halfway through that. We're halfway there. But after that, I mean the the, uh, it's pretty clear that that um, people are absolutely astonished at the quickness, the speed with which uh, the economic damage has occurred. And um, so much of the chattering class can't afford to work at home because they were doing it before anyway. Um, and they're not losing their jobs. They're not losing their income, and they're saying, "Oh, well, we need to have this uh, these these policy in places in place through the summer." And that's absolutely not going to. The other thing is, is that smart people I talk to some do believe that after after May first or starting May first, we will be able to open things up, and they they think it might be on a gradual basis, certainly on a state by state or location by location basis, because there's so many places where it's not a very big problem. And uh, and it will the the first thing that needs to be done obviously is get this virus under control, and give people the confidence that they're not going to get it when they go out, and if they do, that their hospital can take care of them, have more testing, and then you know low density businesses. There are plenty of manufacturing places where people aren't very close to each other. They don't employ many people, which is another economic problem in the last couple of generations. But the fact is, uh, there aren't that many people there. They could certainly open up low-density retail places, department stores and the like. Why couldn't they open up? Um, Then you could move to higher-density places like restaurants, which will probably reconfigure their uh, arrangements and maybe have some sort of protective barriers or things like that. All these things, shops, all these things could begin to open. And by the way, in Europe, you're seeing this start that uh, Italy has started doing it, um, and um, and Germany is going to start doing it. So I, I think there's this realization that with the, the, the word, as we speak now, we've just had another round of 5 million unemployment filings, so a total of 22 million in a month 
um, uh, all of the jobs created since um, the, the Great Recession. I mean, this is insane what's going on. And it has to end soon. And there's no reason health-wise that it couldn't start on May 1, given what we know right at this moment. Most of the Democrat governors want to open up because they feel a tidal wave of workers saying, come on, we want to get back to work. Will um, Pelosi, et cetera, yield to that and go along with that? I think the answer has to be yes. Is that the right um, question to ask? Well, she seemed totally out of touch. I, look, she's she's out of touch with governors and their concerns, even of, their, even of her own party. Um and she's basically just involved with just bashing Trump all the time. So she can so she can support governors reopening their states and still bash Trump for being late or not having enough money to uh, not putting in enough money for this program or that program or telling us, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is a number of governors or a number of Democrats do see this emergency as as they always see emergencies as a chance to enact whatever their favorite policy prescriptions are, be they green uh, green economy measures or universal health care or, or whatever. So I think you can see kind of Pelosi doing her thing along those lines, but not interfering with uh, the governors. Now, now Whitmer, I, she's a kind of an unusual case in, in the sense that she does seem to be perhaps auditioning to be Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate. Don't see that's going to happen, but she is. And she's actually um, kind of overstepped, I think, by imposing two restrictive measures in Michigan. And there's actually been protests about those. So I think I think all the governors, and I, I don't know what Cuomo and Murphy are going to do in New York and New Jersey, but but they, you know, they have an upstate and a downstate, by the way, that where it's not that serious a problem. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that the Democratic governors are going to do just like the Republican governors and want to open this up. And I think that Nancy Pelosi will basically just operate on a kind of different plane from that. I do, too. And if they do, and it's the signal from the president on or about May 1st, then I think pending, you know, a viral disaster resurgence, I think I think the president takes the day overall. You know, May 1st, that gives you May, June, July, August, September, October before the election. I mean, I just don't can't quite predict where things will be um, at that point. I do fear. I don't know what you think about this. I do fear that that some businesses, you know, I mean, one of the things that that created such problems for the middle class over the past couple of generations has been the productivity revolution, especially people involved in manufacturing, that, uh, you know, you you get the same job done with less because you've made this or that stride in productivity. I, I worry that, you know, a company that's laid off 50 people will decide they can make do with 40 people after this, and that this is going to give um, all sorts of business owners quite understandably, an opportunity to rethink how they work and how they want to work coming back. And maybe they don't employ as many people as they did before. And I do worry about that. I worry about that being a a lasting um, uh, consequence of this, or at least a a long-term consequence of this. I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, One light moment. I don't know if you'll think it's funny, but oh, good. Well, I'll, I'll go for it. Yeah. What what good could come out of this? You know, talk about people's pet peeves. We've asked our audience what their pet peeves are. And by the way, what are your worries apart from the country overall? What are your sort of you know particular idiosyncratic worries? And I'm you know me, Byron. I'm very concerned about college football. I mean, I you know, of course, if, if, if we can't do Clemson, Alabama, Auburn, 
I, you know, I, I, you know, LSU, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I, in fact, if it's just the Southeast Conference and Red State Governors, that's okay with me. We'll just have an entire season of Southeast Conference. That's okay. And I don't know how you feel about the Masters and all that, but, but the other one is this. I thought I could tell you it liked. <laughs> no, no, I know you can. We'll take another 45 minutes on that, but uh, feel free to comment. But my, one of my pet peeves, you go to a restaurant and it's not crowded. And you're sitting there and you want to have a quiet dinner with your wife or another couple. And the next foursome that comes in, they sit right next to you. And restaurants do this all the time because, you know, we'll use one waitress or one wait person for, you know, that area. And I always think, why don't you spread us out? Give us a little room. You know, we're not puppies. We don't have to. That could change. Well, I think it's definitely going to change, uh, at least in the beginning, where, well, what they're going to do is, uh, you know, if, if, if the capacity of a place was 120 people before, they're going to make the capacity 60 people and spread them out every other table or something like that. Um, and I, you know, I believe maybe I'm wrong, but I think business people are going to try to try to attract customers. I mean, would you, as a, as a restaurant, uh, a customer, would, would you like it or not like it? Or would it not matter if you got, you walk up and they've got a sign on the door saying all of their employees have been tested for coronavirus? Would that be something that would make any difference in your the way you view the restaurant not to me because because i'm you know i'm kind of a skeptic on this whole business but but yeah i think probably the i wouldn't be surprised if they they do most people most people i think it would matter to most people it wouldn't bother me obviously i'd feel a little better sure but i do have thoughts about golf um you know i was just thinking well just this morning and you said we're talking on a thursday um we there's been a release of um of a schedule for uh, for the major, well, for all the cha- tournaments, and the PGA Tour is going to get back going in June. Not sure if they're going to have any spectators or not to begin with. Um, but the British Open is the only major tournament that has just completely bonked out. They're they're not going to have one this year. First time since World War II. I think it's a bad idea, but that's what they're going to do. Um, but there will be a PGA, and there will be a U.S. Open, and I believe the U.S. Open and the Ryder Cup are going to be like back to back weeks, which would be should be kind of Exciting for uh, viewers, exhausting for golfers. And the Masters will be in November, which is going to be a completely different vibe. Um, but they're going to have them. And I, I'm incredibly, incredibly glad um, that they're going to do that. Yeah, here's what's interesting. I mean, I was watching no, um, footage this past weekend of the 75 Masters, the 86. And uh, yeah. it, <laughs> Wait a minute. How Claude is spending his time <laughs> during his shutdown. <laughs> Honey, I'm working. Clock, close the door. Right. Well, I do uh, have an essential uh, media badge here so I can get out and about right. in Maryland. But, no, I was watching this stuff, and, um, no, I, I do miss uh, a lot of the golf and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's all right. I'll, I'll, we won't miss football. And college football is the most important to me. So we'll, we'll be good come August, September, I think. I think. All right. I'm going to send one message. If there's a Golf Channel executive listening here. You know, you know, if you're bad, if you're watching uh, a replay of the 2019 Waste Management Open, you know, and I would do Claude that. Claude is. Claude is. But, you know, I have to tell you, I would much rather see, show me the whole 1977 British Open. Right. Or show me the 75 Masters or the 86 Masters 
uh, or the 99 U.S. Open. I mean, this is fantastic. Bill, you know, Bill, Bill and Byron, golf channel executives, do it. If I can, Bill and Byron, if I can, just one, just just 15 more seconds. Byron, I'm 100 percent with you, and I was so upset with ESPN because they caught themselves playing a classic game, and it was the the 2016 Western Conference semifinals with Oklahoma City and Golden State, and I'm thinking, why aren't we playing anything from the 80s and 90s and 70s? I mean, they playing Steph Curry and James Harden and Kevin Durant. That's not a classic that happened three years ago. But anyway, exactly. I'm done. I'm classic done. Means classic. Uh, well, all right. All right. Well, one last thing for the two of you and the two of you here, because when we on the radio, we used to talk about the Tiger Woods. Um, and I remember you said, cause I don't know about golf, you said, I, no, I don't think he'll get to Nicholas's record. Um, uh-huh. He's just been delayed, what, six months, right? That can't help him. Well, yeah, and he only has three out of four chances, three chances this year instead of four with no British Open. Uh, Listen, I still don't think he's going to get there. I think that... um, This made it worse. His win... This made it worse. I mean, harder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think his win at the Masters was like a fantastic last hurrah, like Nicholas's was in 1986. So, I, you know, I don't see him winning another one, but what do I know? I didn't think he was going to win another one. You know, if, if you'd asked me three years ago, I'd said... You know, obviously he has the second greatest record in the history of golf, and that's the way it's going to stay. He's not going to win another one. Uh, but he did, so I might be wrong. Confess to me or to our listeners or to me and Claude and our listeners that, you know, in bed at night or sitting there having a cocktail or whatever, that you say, I'm really concerned about people and their safety and well-being and their health and the country and the economy. But damn it, do we really have to do without golf? Does that occur to you? Yes, and golf. And by the way, me playing golf too. Um, you know, because some, there are a few local courses that are still open. Uh, somebody called me up and said, "You want to go play the other day?" And one that was a fifty-minute drive away, which is kind of a lot for me. But golf courses have 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 instituted all these new policies. You know, there can only be one person in a cart. And they have a they have this little ring on the uh, the flag where the flag is in the hole, so the ball doesn't actually fall down in the hole, and you have to reach down and get it, and I guess spread the virus or something. Um, so they've instituted these rules, and then they just shut down altogether. And it, it is a beautiful spring in Washington. That's one of the weird things is that I go out and try to take a long walk every day, my wife and I, and it's just gorgeous out there. You know, everything is blooming, and the days are beautiful. And it's all coming back in green, and you have this new life um, that you just love each year, and it's happening in this weird plague time. Um, but anyway, it would be great to actually get out and actually play golf now. We've asked our listeners to share their experiences, good or bad, you know, apart from the obvious health issues. But uh, one guy commented, he said, uh, you know, my wife and I have talked uh, in ways longer and more intensely than we have in 15 years of marriage. And I, you know, over the course of our conversations, I found out over and over and over again, how many things I've done wrong over the last 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember the very, one of the very first milestones in this was that cruise ship in Japan, uh, which turned into a floating hot zone of coronavirus. And the, the the people were the passengers were locked in their rooms, basically quarantined in their rooms. And and one of the one of the a man a man and a, a an elderly man with his elderly wife who'd been married a long time uh, said that um, 
he said that she had been using the opportunity to uh, remind him of all uh, the mistakes he has made. And then he very dryly said, I think she is not finished. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Shoot. I think we are finished. I don't think we have to go any further. <laughs> Confessions that have already been made. Byron, thank you very much. Uh, we'll put thank a link you, up to all Always your pieces. Always a pleasure, always informative and a pleasure. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett or not like me on Facebook. Does that work? Does that confuse things? Uh, Well, like you on Facebook, but if they don't like something you said or have written about, they can comment on your Facebook okay. page. But like the page so that way you, we can interact. It's not like, they don't have to like me to interact. Correct, right. As a matter of fact, there are some folks who don't like some of the things you're saying who are interacting on Facebook. But we'll get It's like marriage. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to agree all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> See the guy who wrote about this uh he said, yeah, and he said, it's been incredible. He said, 50, you know, I've been home six weeks, and my wife and I have talked about things, I mean, over the, the 15 years of marriage, and we've reviewed everything I've done wrong. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I think that's probably going on in a few places. Oh, yeah. Actually, I don't mean to interrupt, but I do have a friend who, um, so there are some Virginia golf courses that are open, but most of us, our wives won't let us go play golf because they're afraid of the virus. And so he's been playing with his wife, and it's actually been good for their marriage. The, the coronavirus really? being shut in at the house, working from home, going out together. Yeah, it's been great for them. They, they, they've patched a few things up, and uh, I think those, those guys are going to make it. So, Well, it almost broke up my father's marriage. My father was married uh, a second time. My parents were divorced, but... Married a lovely woman from North Carolina, which explains a lot of the North Carolina connection that I have. But uh, she knew what a big golfer he was. Did you know my father was a huge golfer, very good I, I golfer? I did not know that. No. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. That's why I resist it. Anyway, you know, it's funny. Sons. <laughs> uh, now, your son's with you 110% on golf. Yeah, he loves anyway, it. Anyway, uh, my father and uh, Lois, uh, my stepmother, lovely lady, she said, I'll take up golf. Important to you, I'll take it up. And we were having dinner one night, uh, my father, uh, stepmother Lois, uh, Uncle Bob, Bennett, and I, and we, were, we were young guys. And she said, well, I said, how was the golf game today? She said, well, I beat, I beat your father. You know, he's a great golfer, but I beat him. <laughs> and, he, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's right. I said, no, I, no, 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 no grudging there. I beat you. I just flat out beat you. And he said, well, you know, asterisk or something like that. You know, you teed off from... Lady, what do you call it? The ladies' tea? Yeah, the the, what is it? Tees. Uh-huh. How and how much different is that, Claude? Oh man, it can be the difference of almost. It depends on the course, but and depending on where the the gentleman's playing from. But I mean, it can be a difference of almost twenty five hundred yards, three thousand yards, fifteen hundred. It just depends. On where really? Oh yeah, it, it can be. A big so he difference. said, "Well, yeah, you were teeing off, you know, ladies." She said, "Well, I beat you." He said, "Yeah, but it's not the same game." Should I believe we were playing golf? <laughs> Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.